Good morning. Randall uh, told me this morning if I didn't start this way as I usually do, he wouldn't know what to do, and so I will. I need to hit the pavement running this morning, and I really do. Um, I'm going to keep you about 35 minutes. Don't keep time. Just trust me. But before I launch, uh, let me say this. If you're visiting with us today, thank you for coming. It means so much to us that you trust us with your time, your heart, and join us as a family here. And it really does mean something to us. And uh, uh, we want to thank you for coming and uh, come back. If you've got an outline, uh, feel free to fill it in if it helps you as I go through. You'll see things underlined in, in this PowerPoint, and that'll kind of cue you in. And I'll try to do the same. And if it helps, do it. If not, ignore it. In Hollywood, there is a very exclusive school attended by children of some of the very rich and famous. And in one of the classes, the children were asked to write a composition on the subject of poverty. One little girl started her paper this way. Once there was a poor little girl. Her father was poor. Her mother was poor. Her governess was poor. Her chauffeur was poor. Her butler was poor. In fact, everybody in the house was very, very poor. Of course, as someone has once said, everyone tends to kind of take their own field of vision for the limits of the world. Well, after taking a deep breath, James turns his attention to the rich. Of course, if you've been following this, you know, journey through the letter of James, you know that the issue of money and wealth and, 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 and loving people has been hovering in the background of James ever since chapter 1. And the point has always been that social justice is an intense concern to God. Now, I've had time to prepare for this text. And, uh, but I know that in a way you haven't. So I guess I should tip you off before launching off here that there are few scriptures that are more condemning and thus shocking in all the Bible than James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, which probably explains why I've, I've never heard a sermon on this text before. Maybe you have. But given that I am, um, you know, trying to do an expository through James, you know, expositories kind of keep you honest. I didn't feel like I had the luxury of skipping this. And so, just know that here James pulls no punches. And so please be prepared as he rails against the wealthy there in his own community. Well, let's just read it. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, and actually that says the Lord of hosts, which means God's in a fighting posture. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. 
you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposed to you. Most scholars believe that James is preaching here, speaking here, to the ruthless, upper-class, non-Christians of his day. And that seems reasonable to me in the context, but it is an assumption. Those who are pressing the poor in order to amass wealth for themselves. Now, let me just take a brief historical moment. Uh, This is not to bore you, but get the idea. I've shared some of these things with you earlier. In the Roman Empire, there was only about 8% of the entire Roman Empire was considered to be people of wealth. And only about 2% were considered to be people who were in the process of gaining wealth, which leaves a remaining 90% of those in that entire world living at or below the poverty line. And so as you can see, the social economic pyramid was very steep. In other words, there was virtually no middle class. And social climbing was virtually impossible because it was a very rigid system. And you were supposed to know your place. And by the way, if you didn't, the wealthy would keep you there. In addition, it was understood that the way to amass wealth back then was through agriculture, what they called cash crops, using peasant and slaves for their workforce. And these estates were typically, typically owned by wealthy absentee landlords, which is why Jesus uses so many parables about absentee landlords, who were more than willing to callously use people as a way to fulfill their addiction to wealth, even as some of their workers were literally starving to death. For example, Philostratus, who wrote back in the second century, wrote about a guy by the name of Polyneus, and it's kind of an unnerving account of the selfishness and indifference of the wealthy. Listen. Bread riots. In other words, people were in riot because they weren't getting enough food. Bread riots are no easy matter. But Apollonius was able to cope with people of temper. The people were living on siege rations. Interpret starving. Why? Because the ruling class had put the entire supply of grain under lock and key. Why? So that they could export it at an even greater profit. Are you beginning to get the picture? Now, I share that with you not to enable us to distance ourselves from this text, but really in a way to help force us to actually relate to this text. And so before we allow ourselves to be, you know, anesthetized by our climate-controlled, upholstered environment, let me ask us this question. Is the problem of living a self-indulgent lifestyle only something that non-Christians deal with? Well, my point is, on the top of your outline, while the rich are called to weep, we are not invited to gloat. Quite frankly, most people, whatever their financial conditions, resist the claim of being categorized as what? Rich. Anyone in here rich? And so the question I find myself asking, if we claim not to be wealthy, then do we pay attention only to the things that God has to say to the oppressed? And what if we perceive ourselves not being amongst the wealthy or the oppressed? Does God allow us in on this and show us his judgments? 
just so that we can cheer on those who are mistreated? Certainly there's more to it than that. You see, God is passionately against injustice and indifference, and so he calls us who are followers of Jesus to be a force for social justice in this world. Ronald Sider wrote a book entitled Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger. And he cited an occasion, which I found very interesting, where this very passage of Scripture, James chapter 5, 1 through 6, was read before a group of preachers in America. Not realizing that this actual reading came from the Bible, they were told that these words were attributed to Emma Goldman, who was, at the time, a, an anarchist ag- an antagonist. The response? The ministers became extremely indignant and said this woman should be deported from the United States for saying such things. At that, Ronald Sider cuts to the point and says this. Most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teachings about the deadly dangers of possessions. We all know that James warned that possessions are highly dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, that they are. it is extremely difficult for a rich person to become a Christian at all. That is, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But we do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States live in the richest society in the history of the world, surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors. Yet, we insist on more and more. If Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous, then we must ignore or reinterpret his message. You see, what got James so worked up was that people of affluent lifestyles And they could live this way while being indifferent to the people who need it around them. And when it should have been really clear to everybody that these are the last days. And so if that's true, we're compelled to open our eyes to what all of this wealth is doing to us. You see, wealth does lie to us. And that it promises to be a worthy object of our trust. If you remember the last time, uh, in the last lesson, we talked about, you know, God at work in the marketplace in business. And we talked about how uh, some people, when they experience financial prosperity, uh, become susceptible to the illusion that we can actually control the future. Well, now, related to this reality is the observation on your outlines, wealth tempts people to believe that they can put off the future. You know, it might be the last days for you, but... I have too much money for it to be the last days for me. Money can buy time, can it? You see, we all know that Jesus says what? That mammon, money, promises security, but it also demands something else vital from us. Money is not neutral because behind money lurks a very strong, powerful, dark force. Money is not neutral. So we're warned not to get caught up into thinking that somehow we can negotiate serving God and serving money. It can't be done. Because they both want the same thing from us. Our trust, our allegiance. 
Dom Camara, who wrote a book, Revolution Through Peace, says this. I used to think when I was a child that Christ might have been exaggerating or exaggerated when he warned about the dangers of wealth. Today I know better. I know how hard it is for the, to be rich and still keep the milk of human kindness. Money has a dangerous way of putting scales on one's eyes, a dangerous way of freezing people's hands and eyes and lips and their hearts. How about you? We use the word materialism today. Well, you know, materialism is not a person who is wealthy. Not a person of affluence. Rather, materialism is really an attitude that both rich and poor can possess. Because it's an attitude that basically expects gold to do what only God can do. And so James is not condemning people for being prosperous. But what he is condemning is the insensitive, indulgent lifestyle that inevitably results when we put our trust in wealth instead of God for our sense of security for the future. Let me put it this way. Some people who trust in God might very well become wealthy. But all who trust in riches will, on some degree or another, become ungodly. And so James has a good bit to say as he unloads on these people who have become addicted to the pursuit of money while blinding themselves to the needs of others. And he calls for them to shed tears. Now, you understand in this text, James is not talking about the tears of repentance. Rather, he's speaking out about those who comfortably and callously turned a blind stare toward those in need, and thus he's calling for them to shed tears to come out of being overwhelmed by the evidence of misplaced trust. James speaks out of the bluntness of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4, riches won't help you on the day of judgment. The wealthy who live without love are in for a future shock. And James talks as though the die's already cast, doesn't he? The first shock on your outline is this. Hoarded wealth will testify against you. It's inevitable that if we look to riches to kind of you know, be our shelter in life, naturally, we will attempt to amass greater wealth. In other words, we reason in our minds that the more wealth will make us more secure. Doesn't it kind of work that way? Now, in James's day, they didn't do that by buying, you know, investing in stock. Rather, they amassed their financial portfolio in three ways. Clothing, food, and precious metals. Which is why James offers this catalog of futility, pointing to the serious problems of hoarding. You see, when you're surrounded by people who need global vision, Stockpiling evidences extreme selfishness. Think about it. What clothes end up getting eaten by moths? Well, it's the clothes that have been sitting in our closets for so long, and we haven't worn them so long, that they just sit there and they're eaten up. Well, what food rots? 
Well, it's the items in the back of the pantry that have been sitting there so long, they just deteriorate. Now, why would a person rather his goods deteriorate than belong to somebody else who needs it? Now, if you're on the Jesus wavelength, you're already at this story. You've been thinking about it. Luke 12, you know, the rich, fool. Here's a man who's already rich. He's already a wealthy landowner with a very abundant cash crop. And so what does he do when he's blessed by another bumper crop? Does he think, you know, it's time for me to get out there and start feeding some people? No, rather he thinks, I need to build bigger barns. I need to stockpile more. Of course, the punchline of the whole story is that the wealthy, that as wealthy as he was, he couldn't put off the future, and he ended up, in essence, being caught with his hands full. You get the idea? And so what Jesus and James are trying to get across is that what we think is indestructible is doomed if it's not given away, put to good use. So if we have so much that we can't use it, then why don't we let someone else have it who does? And so you see, that's why James says here, it speaks against hoarding, because money talks. James says their corrosion will testify against you. And I start sweating, get a little nervous on this one. Now what is James saying, though? Well, the New Living Translation makes it a little bit clearer when it says, this treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you in the day of judgment. The same verse is rendered in the message this way. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. Imagine the shock as the closets of the rich take the witness stand to testify against them. I figure if God can get a donkey to talk, he can get a closet to talk. And now Jesus teaches us that we can, we can use our wealth to commend us. He does say this. We're not stuck. He commends us in the next life. For example, Jesus says what? In the parable of the shrewd manager, it's one of the more obscure ones. Luke 16, use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. That is, people will meet us in the gates of heaven, and they will thank us for the way we used our money. And some of that money got them there. But James says it works both ways. The wealth that commends some people in the afterlife will condemn others. The second shock, justice cannot be bought. And I know what you're thinking, oh yes it can, just hold on. We all know how that in a fallen world, wealth supplies a great deal more than buying power. Because with affluence comes what? Influence, and oftentimes at the price of justice. Well, in James' day, the rich were legally cheating the poor, particularly out of their wages. And that was because of the influence they had within the legal system. Because justice in that day is often like justice is today. 
We don't mean it to be, but that is the rich get a little bit more justice than the rest. You remember that James has already talked about this back in chapter 2, if you want to argue that one, when he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And then he says here, you have condemned and murdered innocent men. I told you it was strong language. Now, James isn't saying that that the rich were running around, running poor people through with swords during the daylight. What they were doing is so manipulating the system in order to endorse their greed. First, the wealthy were forcing the poor off their land through foreclosures. And then, out of survival, those poor people end up working for the very rich people that took their land while they lived on the verge of starvation because they weren't getting paid enough. And the poor could do nothing about it. Now, although the intent in America is for everyone to be on a level playing field, and my first thought is, of course, with all that I know globally, I'd rather be here when it comes to the issue of justice anywhere else in the world. But I'm not ready to make America heaven. But let me say this. We have to admit that often the golden rule in America is that the one with the gold makes the rules. As Ambrose said back in the 4th century, riches are the instrument of all vices because they render us capable of putting even our worst desires into execution. Kind of true. But there is a justice that cannot be bought. And while the cries of the poor and the oppressed apparently weren't reaching the ears of Christians in James's community like they ought to have because of their passivity and their indifference, James tells us that it does reach the ears of God himself. And on the last day, God will have the last word, and when God renders a judgment, there will be no appeals. It's a done deal. And so some who all their lives have used their wealth to get their own way, you ever do that? Are going to find themselves in a court where they cannot buy the answer that they want. In fact, in verse 5, James uses another one of those harsh metaphors. As he says to the rich people, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You know what that's suggesting? I mean, do you get the perspective that James was pointing to there? I wasn't raised on a farm. I know some of you were. And you know that when it came time, you took that hog or that cow and you started feeding them a lot of grain or put them out in the best passage, passage, uh, you know, passage area to eat in order to fatten them up. And while they were involved in that kind of gluttonous moment, did that animal have any clue at all why you were doing this? Why that cow was completely oblivious that he was about to face judgment. That's what James says is how these rich people are living. Well... What are you and I going to do with this uh, 
disturbing text. I certainly do not believe that callousness and self-indulgence is what reflects the heart of this Christian family. I don't. In fact, you know, um, when people are constantly trying to escape Christianity, saying that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, pointing to a bunch of hypocrites, I point to some of you for credibility. Because how you live the Jesus message out. You get it. But having said that, neither, you know, neither can we ignore that by the standards of this world, all of us are wealthy and rich. And if you take issue with that, you may be right, I just don't know you well. And neither can we deny that social injustice is a reality in our fallen world. And nor can we deny that we all face people in need. And so our only option then is either to respond lovingly and courageously or to just turn a blind eye. I don't want to think of the number of times I've turned a blind eye. And so few Americans can read this passage with understanding without at least being singed a little bit by its truth. After all, we participate in a society that continues to consume more and more and as much as possible without ever having regard for the conditions elsewhere in the world. But I still find myself asking, why does God paint such a horrific, disturbing picture? Well, I think it's just for that reason, to jolt all of us out of our tendency not to care. You see, sometimes God shows us the end of a road so that we will not be tempted to get on it in the first place. And so let me offer, as we close, two antidotes. First, be activists for Jesus. You see, Jesus asks from us more than offering general agreement with Christianity to the facts of Christianity and acquiescence toward the stands of the church. Rather, it's to be, as one person put it, a life of the heart that unsettles poise and insists on transformation. In other words, do we allow the Holy Spirit to unsettle us? You know, if our eyes were really to be opened all of a sudden, what would we see? Do we use wealth and influence and those loving and courageous ways to promote peace and justice in our world? Do we care about our brothers and sisters and people around the globe? James makes it very clear that indifference and indulgence are far more grievous to God than we typically imagine. Oscar Romero, who was a religious leader in El Salvador back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, speaks to the issue, this issue of wealth and, and, and uh, indulgence. But before I quote him, let me 
tell you that he was assassinated back in 1980. And the reason he was assassinated is because he actually spoke out against the horrible abuses of oppression against the poor there in El Salvador by a political militant regime that was even sending out death squads, killing people indiscriminately who spoke out against them. He happened to be one of its victims. And I share that with you simply to say that I think his words here carry maybe a little bit more weight, knowing that he says this. The church's social teachings tells everyone that the Christian religion does not have merely a horizontal meaning or merely a spiritual meaning that overlooks the wretchedness that surrounds us. It is a looking to God and from God at one's neighbor as brothers and sisters and an awareness that whatever you did to one of these, you did to me. It would be worthless to have an economic liberation in which all the poor had their own house and their own money, but were all sinners, their hearts estranged from God. What good would it be? There are nations at present that are economically and socially quite advanced, yet how much vice and excess? Second on your outlines... Be content with Jesus. God is not against pleasure. God is not against entertainment. God is, he's for beautiful things. He, he, he's for you saving your money responsibly for the future. But of all these things, they're supposed to be understood in the context of submission to God. In other words, these blessings are meant to do something to us and for us. They're meant to supply us so that we can be in better position to help those in need later. They're to be a way of rejuvenating us, to give us more energy to want to serve people more later. And they're always there as a hint, reminding us that God is always very gracious to us. The love of Christ compels me. It's like a bumper sticker that my wife pointed out to me the other day. It simply said, live simply so that others may simply live. C.S. Lewis couches this idea of contentment this way. The settled happiness and security which all desire God withholds from us by the very nature of this world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and pose an obstacle to our return to God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a football match, have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on our journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. And so I end Thirty-five minutes on the dot. <laughs> With this advice from Paul to Timothy and to us, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, 
to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life. Do you believe it? That's truly life. If we can serve you as a family this morning in any way, please feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.